a special live broadcast of Shout for Libraries, Edmonton's premier library-centric radio show. I'm Julia Guy. And I'm Timothy Arthur. We at the show are a group of masters in library and information studies students who are devoted to leaping blindly down every rabbit hole bring you the latest in the land of libraries. That's right. And today we've got a full hour of programming lined up for CGSR's annual fun drive, which is kicking off today. Yep, it's that time of year again. When you, the listener, have the chance to show the good people at CJSR just how much you value the boundary-pushing radio content that we work so hard to bring you all year long. That's right. We are accepting donations throughout the show, so give us a ring at 780-492-2577, extension zero. And if you call or donate during our show, you'll be entered to win a fabulous $50 gift card to Variant Edition Comics. We're super happy that those folks donated that to us. You'll also be entered to win a shoebox full of random hockey cards. How much are the cards worth? We have no clue, but maybe a lot, or maybe not. It's a surprise. Plus, depending on how much you donate, you could get a bunch of cool rewards, which honestly are worth it on their own. Mm-hmm. But more on that later, because right now we're dying to get into the amazing show we've got prepared for you today. You may have guessed it by our opening song, When I Write My Thesis by John K. Sampson, but our theme for today is weird research and interesting research. So let's dive right in. And first up, we have a segment by Shouts Joel Bluckinger, who is here with us at CJSR headquarters running the board for our live episode. Earlier this week, Joel had the chance to reflect on his journey down one particular research rabbit hole into the land of the dead. You've turned on, you've tuned in, so let's check it out. Hey everybody, Joel here. For this episode's theme of weird research, I thought I would take you down a specific research rabbit hole that I've fallen into over the past half year. The Grateful Dead collection in the Internet Archive's Live Music Archive. As an aspiring rock music fan in my teens, a proto-beardo, we might say, I spent countless hours scrolling BobDylan.com and Eof Ostrom's indispensable DylanCords.info as I learned Bob Dylan's songbook and, crucially, the canonical narratives of both his career and studio discography. The early 60s folk singer-songwriter albums of finger-pointing songs turned towards high imagism and surreal free associative poetry. The famous electric turn at Newport 1965, the 1966 motorcycle accident, the country turn in 1969, the Christian turn of the late 70s. The career nadirs and zeniths could all be traced in that monumental, generation-defining studio discography. The default mode of the 20th century rock nerd, which I imitated, was not only to obsessively learn an artist or group's discography, but to learn that discography's arc, and then to put that arc in conversation with other canonical discographic arcs. A pet book idea of mine, for example, involves surveying the discographies of boomer icons, Joni Mitchell, Neil Young, Bob Dylan, Leonard Cohen, etc., in the 80s, as they were forced to contend with MTV and a new generation of pop stars, and made some of their worst music, er, most interesting narrative career choices. For me, one of the singular joys of getting into the Grateful Dead's music over the past half year has been in rethinking the tyranny of the studio discography, because for the vast majority of their fans, the studio discography, outside of a few 
unanimously agreed upon early 70s classics is a secondary concern to their vast live recorded corpus. From their origins in San Francisco's Haight-Ashbury hippie scene in 1965 through to lead guitarist and band figurehead Jerry Garcia's passing in 1995, the band played over 36,000 live versions of songs in 2,317 concerts in close to 300 cities. Okay, let's do a little background here. From early on, a distinct subculture formed around the Grateful Dead, known as the famous or infamous Deadheads, that began taping their live shows and developed sophisticated, often quite hierarchical, tape trading networks, usually traded through the mail to disseminate new tapes. Live taping was, in the early days, a labor-intensive process. As David A. Wallace notes in Co-Creation of the Grateful Dead Sound Archive, early tapers, quote, developed and refined methods to smuggle their gear into venues and elude event security. And they also had to have access to, quote, a good tape deck and quality microphones a microphone stand, tapes, batteries, and cables, then getting tickets, and, once successfully inside, locating and setting up in a prime spot sound-wise, then monitoring recording levels and equipment to capture the best possible recordings. Justification for live dead bootlegging usually cites comments made by Jerry Garcia himself in 1975, as quoted in Blair Jackson's Garcia, An American Life. Quote, I think taping is okay, Garcia said in 1975. If people like it, they can certainly keep doing it. I don't have any desire to control people as to what they're doing and what they have. There's something to be said for being able to record an experience you've liked, or being able to obtain a recording of it. My responsibility to the notes is over after I've played them. At that point, I don't care where they go. Eventually, in 1984, the band even acted to create a dedicated taper section in its audience, the OTS, Official Tapers Section, behind the soundboard, because audience sightlines to the stage were being obstructed by too many microphone stands. Created on March 27, 2004, the Internet Archive's live music archive, Grateful Dead Collection, is the natural successor to the Dead's obsessive tape trading community. 13,852 recordings are housed in the collection, from two in 1965 to 915 in 1990. And this sheer volume of recorded shows, according to Wallace, quote, has made the Dead the most recorded and traded act in music history. Now, the close listener may note that this 13,852 recording total is about 11,500 more recordings than the dead played as shows. This enormous discrepancy in counts can be explained with reference to recording sources. The hallowed 5-8-1977, May 8th, 1977 at Cornell University's Barton Hall, which in some circles is thought to be the greatest dead show in history, though of course this is a subject of fierce debate within deadhead dumb, is represented in the collection in at least 21 different versions. Recordings are classified in the collection, as they were with actual tapes, as SBDs, recordings taped by plugging in directly to the show's soundboard, 
the most famous SPDs being the hallowed Betty Boards, made by Betty Cantor Jackson, a live audio engineer for the band from 1968 to 1981, AUDs, recordings made in the audience with microphones, and matrixes, or matrices, which are artfully combined composites of the two. A matrix may be made, for example, to add clear SBD audio into an AUD while retaining some of the live feel of the crowd reacting to parts of the set. Yeah, man. The 13,852 recordings in the collection reflect the sheer variety of approaches taken to recording and processing audio. Whether that's in the different recordings altogether, different transfers taken from the same tape, or different matrix combinations of different recording sources to find that perfect mix, that chef's kiss of audio. One of the funniest or strangest artifacts in the collection to me is known as Tuning 77, an audio art project by artist Michael David Murphy, which he describes as, quote, a seamless audio supercut of an entire year of the Grateful Dead tuning their instruments live on stage. Chronologically sequenced, this remix incorporates every publicly available recording from 1977, examining the divide between audience expectation and performance anxiety. Here's a little of Tuning 77 for you. Fascinating dimension to the archive is in its user rating and commenting function for each recording. Acid-addled deadheads, or posters posing as them, will surface on a show's page, sharing memories of attending the show in question, slagging the show in favor of some other one that you've never listened to, or ranting about how a show was a complete hoax perpetrated through the joint efforts of the U.S. Department of Defense and the CIA. Anyone that finds the Internet Archive's interface to be cumbersome can also elect to use relisten.net, which is a more streamlined interface overlaid on the Grateful Dead collection that allows for elegant navigation between years, shows, and sources. Headyversion.com is another cool site which allows users to upvote certain live renditions of songs in an attempt to definitively establish the best version ever performed of a song. Headyversion links back to the Internet Archive, to allow you to listen to the version and decide for yourself. Here's a little taste of the best-rated Uncle John's Band from a soundboard recording on September 18, 1974 at Parc des Expositions in Dijon, France.
overall, the Grateful Dead collection as part of the Internet Archive's live music archive is a fascinating instance of collective curation that ensures that the dead's legacy is continuously accessible to legions of new perspective heads such as myself. Anyone that wishes to learn more, especially from an information studies perspective, I would direct to David A. Wallace's co-creation of the Grateful Dead Sound Archive, Control, Access, and Curation Communities in the edited volume, Community Archives, The Shaping of Memory, from 2009. If you want to check that archive out, search up the Grateful Dead collection at the Internet Archive Live Music Archive. If you are just tuning in, we are Shout for Libraries, and this is our Fun Drive special. Fun Drive is the biggest fundraising event of the year here at CJSR, and we're collecting donations right now. So give us a ring at 780-492-2577, extension zero. Volunteers are standing by. To take your call. That's right, and we just got some super, super exciting news that the fun drive total has reached over $5,000 so far, so that's amazing. And CJSR has some amazing swag giveaways for donors this year. For 30 bucks, you could receive a Friends of CJSR card with loads of amazing deals. You'll easily earn that $30 back in savings for sure. Mm-hmm. And check out the CJSR website for more levels of swag that you could get. And while you are getting your finances in order so you can give CJSR all of your money, why don't you listen to the first part of my interview with Robin Stobbs. I had the chance to interview Robin on Wednesday about her research into information behavior, exchange, and phenomenon in tabletop board gaming. So have a listen. So I am here with Robin Stubbs, uh, and you're going to tell us a little bit about your research. Uh, But first, why don't you just give us an introduction to who you are and what your background is? Hi, Julia. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) I am currently an interdisciplinary PhD student in the departments of human ecology and library information studies here at the University of Alberta. Maybe some of our listeners don't know, but when you enter into the Master's in Library and Information Studies, you can kind of have any background. So you end up with some pretty eclectic uh, backgrounds and interests, which is great. And so what are your research interests exactly? I'm broadly interested in how people engage with different fictional worlds. So whether that's reading, playing games, etc., But specifically with my current research project, I am working with tabletop role-playing gamers and how they engage with and create worlds both in the moment and then kind of in a broader picture of what their worlds look like. That's very, very cool. So uh, probably the most famous one is D&D. Are there other fictional worlds as well that you're interested in? Oh, yes. So for my project, I'm interested in whatever world people want to be playing their game in that they want to talk to me about. At the moment, may have one D&D group, but my other groups actually haven't been playing Dungeons & Dragons. Oh, okay. So do you kind of compare different uh, games and different methods that people use as well in your research? Yeah, so what I'm really interested in is the sort of small in-the-moment interactions with the world. So the ways people talk about the world, maybe negotiate the rules or make a joke in the moment, and how those things kind of build up and get carried throughout play. Okay as well as then thinking about, well, they've talked about the world this way when they're playing, but then there's that overall picture of how the world works or what the goals are for gameplay. And those might 
come out or be displayed in different ways when you're actually observing games in the moment than if you talk to someone afterwards in an interview. So I'm trying to build a bigger picture of how those things work. Where did where did this come from, this curiosity you had about this? Well, when I did my master's research, I worked with fiction readers, and I was interested in the types of information they found and used and what they got out of reading fiction. So that was where I kind of started in with research. And then as I finished my master's degree, I actually started playing Dungeons and Dragons and got a different <laughs> sense of a whole other way to engage with the world where people are actually role-playing within the world and creating whole worlds to play within. And I thought that would be a really interesting thing to look at. And there's a real social aspect of that to kind of examine. That's been a lot of fun. And part of what I'm hoping to look at that's been really interesting so far too is with groups and as they're playing, how the rules shape the world, but then how they then negotiate the rules and negotiate the world. And in some cases, they're changing it specifically to make the elements of a story work or to make play more interesting. And in other cases, they're saying the rules have to be the particular way the rules are. So there's th those little bits are part of what I'm really interested in kind of teasing out and just how people are able to kind of use information and engage to create a whole space and a whole world that they can act within but can't typically actually see, but they're all able to agree upon that space together. So your background, as you mentioned, is in library and information studies. How do you tie in kind of your library and information background with this research? So part of what I am hoping to look at is because my other department I'm in has a material culture stream and the idea of studying objects. So I'm interested in how information is used to build and create fictional objects or how people are able to bridge between that fictional world and the actual world and the different information objects and pieces they use as a part of that process. So to give a concrete example of that, a lot of tabletop gamers will use a gaming mat and miniatures on the table, but they may also be referencing out to rule books. So there's all these different little pieces that people are able to use to build this experience together but they're also adapting them for their own group and their own play. And that, that interaction is really interesting to kind of tease out. Mm -hmm. My understanding is that you can build off of games or if you want, you can create your own world as well. So does that factor into differences in how people interact with those games? Oh yes, and what I'm trying to do with my study is get a group interacting with the world in a kind of each a different way. So I have one group that's doing more of what's termed a legacy game. And I have another group who the person running the game has created his entire own rule set based on an openly available set of rules that you're free to adapt and use and the world itself. And then I'm hoping, I have a couple of other groups considering participating who are doing more of a their own world but using an established set of rules like Dungeons and Dragons. So there's kind of getting that bit of variation to see the different ways that people are able to create and share that fictional space and really engage with it. That's, that's so neat. And so you, you're mentioning your groups that you've reached out to and are working with. How did you go about finding them and asking them to, to be involved? I did a bit of, I guess what you'd term snowball sampling. So I started out with, because I have gamed myself, having people who I knew who gamed continue to kind of send out. I had a little image about my research and a little blurb about what my study was and having them kind of send it out to people they knew who kept sending it out. So I actually don't know how far, how many layers <laughs> out it went because I kept getting emails back from people. Can I post it on my Facebook page or with a Facebook group? Because I think people might be interested. So it kind of snowballed out that way. Awesome. And how have the reactions been when you've sort of explained your research to these groups? People are typically interested because I just want to know about something that's of interest to them and how they mm. do it, right? Mm. Um, so pe people are often very willing to come in for an interview, but part of the issue I've run up against a little bit is that 
I'm also doing video recording so that I can capture that in the moment play and generally people are uncomfortable being videotaped so that can be a little more difficult to get a group where the whole group is comfortable being filmed. Mm -hmm. And I do wonder I mean about whether your presence or the camera's presence kind of has an effect on the gameplay? Yes, so my goal is to not have a lot of effect on the gameplay, but of course when there's a camera there, I have to, I've been marking in some of my transcripts, people will make jokes about the camera being there and things like that. But often as they get playing, they tend to get into the game and are more more so ignoring the camera. Mm -hmm. But of more course immersed. you can't totally yeah. minimize the effect of me being there or the camera being there. That's right, yeah. We'll be right back with the rest of that interview, but we needed to take a break from that nerdy goodness to remind you that this is fun drive. Mm -hmm. We're raising money for our beloved CJSR today on Shout for Libraries, and we would love so much to have you call in with your donations to 780-492-2577, extension zero. All of your donations will go straight towards keeping this gem of a community radio station on the airwaves. So far, we've raised $5,045. Mm-hmm. So keep the calls coming. That's right. And our show, in our, so far, this episode, we have raised $500. We're super excited. So please, please, please keep it coming. Uh, and now we'll go back to part two of my interview with PhD uh, candidate Robin Stobbs, where we will discuss what she hopes to explore with her research into tabletop role-playing games and how her research has developed over time, starting with her initial research questions. So my initial research question for this study was very broad. So I'm interested in ways people engage with fictional worlds in tabletop role playing games. So that's my overarching question. And then more specifically under that, because I'm in material culture and library and information studies, I'm interested in the ways that people are negotiating their the immaterial world, so the fictional world, while doing while sitting in a material space. And then the information studies angle coming in with what information are people using, or in the case of as they're moving through the world, or role-playing moving through the world, what information do they need to do that? Or what information do they use to support arguments <laughs> for how they're going to do something? So I have some really great little pieces that coming out of some of my transcripts of people referring to the rules or trying to make an argument for ignoring the rules because you should be able to jump on top of a sarcophagus. If you can jump over a person, why can't you jump on top? In the rules, you can't jump on an object in this particular game. Um. So they're trying to make a whole argument for that sort of thing. So there's that information piece of how are they using information to make arguments to make gameplay work, mm -hmm. and then and discourse or talk, mm -hmm. and then the information. And those are the main pieces. And it's a very exploratory kind of what you call a case-based study, so I'm getting in a great deal of depth with actually only two to three groups mm -hmm. and trying to tease out a lot of the different types of things they're doing in order to talk about things in hopefully a good deal of depth and detail. Out of all the observations, are there any trends that you're seeing that maybe some of our D&D players might recognize or anything that's kind of common to all the groups so far? My approach is kind of called a big and small story approach. And with the small stories, the idea is what are those little kind of in-the-moment stories that people are using in their interactions? Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to see how some of those kind of play through the data. So I have a group where, as is typical in many role-playing games, there's, there's a thief type of character. Mm -hmm. And he steals gold out from under one of the other players, or has the potential to do so. And they refer back to him as a thief and making a joke on it, even though it's expected behavior the way this game works, that he would do so, but 
they're not going to heal him later because he stole money from him. Or they so there's this kind of out of character running joke that's also bleeding into character. And there's little bits of stories that kind of carry through. And I've seen a lot of different types of those coming through the data. So they're also, if people are reading set bits of text, they'll read it, but then they'll contextualize it for their group or they'll make a little joke about it. And sometimes it's referring to past gameplay and interesting references like that, that I think are hard to talk about without pulling out a transcript and mm-hmm. showing you a chunk mm-hmm. of it, but there's some really interesting, really small-scale things that I'm going to be looking at as a part of my research. And it's interesting to see them building those jokes as they go. So in some cases, they're referring back. I have one group who has quite a long history of gameplay together, and they're referring back, and their group history is affecting this game's history mm-hmm. as well as they go. And I have another group who hadn't really played together before. Some of them knew each other, but they hadn't played as a group. But you could see them building their own jokes and things in as they went based on their characters and how they were playing the game. Huh. So there's this really collaborative element for building the gaming experience. as, And that also affects the, the world itself and how they engage with that world. Because mm-hmm. the game master can adjust things as they go to kind of facilitate the types of play the players want to do. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of really nuanced interactions going on. That's very cool. I like that a lot. So what kind of world building do you do? in your free time. What kind of games do you play? Um, Right now I am doing less world building and more role playing. Mm -hmm. So I'm playing a quickling monk in a fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons game and the game master for that game had to kind of what's termed homebrew the quickling as a race that you can play because it's not standard in the Mm -hmm. set. So I'm 18 inches tall and I run around punching things. Ah! And we get a lot of fun jokes going about how I have to I have to jump up to punch someone in the nose, and I had to build up my stats in such a way that I would be able to jump that many feet in the air. Aww. So there are lots of different interplay and things going on there. And I imagine it would you probably look at things differently. I'm guessing because uh, you've been sort of in this particular mindset where you're looking in from the outside, and then to be on the inside again has that changed your gameplay at all? I notice things like, oh, oh, I have participants groups. This is cool. And I'm just going, no, no, no. I'm in character. I'm a monk. Don't <laughs> <laughs> get excited. You're a monk. Yes. You're a monk. And I do find the role playing is a nice break from some of the other things that you get to do because you get to stop and sit and be a different character and try and figure out how this character might react to a particular situation mm-hmm. that in many cases is quite a fantastic situation you wouldn't necessarily see yeah. in daily life. Oh, I I think it's I think it's awesome that this is uh, I feel like coming back. Like I feel like there is a resurgence of these kinds of games. Am I crazy? Would you say that that's happening? Anecdotally, yes. Anecdotally. <laughs> off the record, <laughs> off the research record. I've had people actually send me articles, like just over Facebook or email or whatever, referring to teachers starting to use Dungeons and Dragons in classrooms mm-hmm. for teaching different skills, um, cool. to more women playing role playing games. And I actually had a potential participant group who had started playing in part because they'd seen Dungeons and Dragons being played on Stranger Things. I was which just going to say but... Stranger Things. Well, it's one of those but things, too. Once you find something of interest, there's whole other areas to explore. So there are podcasts and video casts of people gaming and all sorts of things mm-hmm. you can go and watch. And the storytelling element becomes a big thing in those, too. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like a whole other genre of ways to enjoy stories. Mm-hmm. Totally. Well, I know I did a pilot study kind of testing methods out before I started this one. And in that study, um, I wasn't necessarily getting to record people playing. I had one group invite me, and that's how my whole other study developed. Mm. 
Um, but I was doing what I called object interviews, where I had people bring in something they'd made related to a fictional world and just tell me about it. Mm -hmm. And I had a couple of game masters come in as a part of that pilot study, and they tended to really emphasize the value of gameplay and the creative aspects and the collaborative storytelling as being just really important as a social aspect of their lives and mm -hmm. something that they just got a lot of fulfillment out of. And that's something that they, they emphasized over and over again that I feel like is a really kind of interesting thing to study in of itself and understand the importance of leisure activities and the ways we can use them and just enjoy things. Uh, you were talking about your uh, kind of your pilot study. Mm -hmm. um, was there any other steps that led you to this point or any, how did you decide on, you know, your, your methodology and your plan of action and all of that kind of stuff in your development process? So when I started out, as I was kind of preparing to do the pilot study, I was more broadly interested in just how people engage with fictional worlds and what did people make related to fictional worlds. So it was really kind of object-based. Mm -hmm. um, and as a part of that process, people were bringing in objects and telling me about how they made them, what they used them for, what their gaming process was, that sort of thing. And one of the participants, the one who was doing live-action role-play, she brought in a hockey bag full of these fantastic costume pieces she'd made as a part of that. Wow. And she was talking about tagging of objects and how in that sense, there's this little paper tag and that tag was what made the object real. As in that it had, it was able to be used in game and it had particular properties. So she had a shield that was legendary and a legendary shield meant that it couldn't be broken, but it was the tag that gave it that legitimacy. Mm. So there's that kind of, that really sparked something for me in that there's this real object with fictional qualities being used in actual space <laughs> in a fictional world. So there's all this Whoa, border crossing going on. my brain just, <laughs> that's amazing. And that got me really interested in, well, now how are people being able to kind of assign and agree upon all of these things and what processes are going on there and how is this actual object functioning in a fictional and an actual space and that that kind of shifted my study to have the sort of I need to record people while they're playing so that I can see how they're actually able to do these things as well as have that understanding of the rules and the, the world and how they've designed their world and what they're doing with mm -hmm. it. Yeah. there's lots of interesting layers going on well thank you so much Thank you for letting me come and oh talk about my God. research. It's Thank always lovely you. to get to talk about Thank it. you. i got to find some D&D. &D. This is now an ad. Please <laughs> let me play D&D &D with you. Well, thank you so much. Thanks so much to Robin Stobbs, interdisciplinary PhD student by day and tiny badass clickling monk by night for taking the time to talk to me about her very, very cool research. And that's the theme for today's episode of Shout for Libraries, weird and unique research. That's right. This is not your grandma's research. No, ma'am. <laughs> we knew we had to pull out all the stops because it's what? Fun Drive! Uh, and I wanted to take a moment to thank our amazing food sponsors today, the local omnivore and Pink Gorilla Pizza, and for our uh, whole Fun Drive sponsor, Earth General Store. We are so appreciative to have your tasty, tasty food and coffee fueling the Fun Drive, so thank you so much. Yeah, thank you indeed. Um, and also, if you donate... Um, during the show, you'll be entered to win a prize that we wrangled up in the form of a $50 gift card for Variant Edition Comics. Mm -hmm. So thank you, Variant Edition Comics. And a random shoebox <laughs> full of hockey <laughs> cards that our own Hong Yi Gong donated to the show. So thank you, Hong Yi. That's right. Life and is speaking, like a yeah, box of hockey of cards. random hockey cards. You never cards. know what yeah. you're going to get. And speaking of Hong Yi, 
She's responsible not only for this box of mystery hockey cards, but also for our next segment. So let's get weird. <laughs> Hello, listeners. What's up? This is Hongyi. I hope you have enjoyed our content so far. So, what I'm going to share with you for the next few minutes is yet another fun research because it's Fun Drive. Now, when we talk about research, one of the most prestigious awards in the world for researchers is the Nobel Prize. You may have already known from the news that one of the winners this year is a Canadian. James Peebles from Winnipeg is one of the winners of the Nobel Prize in Physics for theoretical discoveries in physical cosmology. While we congratulate all the winners and appreciate your contributions to science, literature, and peace, don't you have a feeling that some of these topics are just too serious? But research can be fun too, and I'm going to tell you how fun and weird it can be. So, if some of you are thinking what I'm thinking, since I've already mentioned the Nobel Prize. It's time to introduce y'all to the Ig Nobel Prize. It's spelled I G and then Nobel Prize, and of course, it's a pun to the actual Nobel Prize and the word Ig Nobel. So, for those of you who haven't heard of Ig Nobel Prize before, these prizes are real and they're awarded to real, serious but not the serious research. To quote the organizer, the improbable research, the Ig Nobel Prizes honor achievements that make people laugh and then make them think. Every September, there's a gala ceremony held at Harvard University's Sanders Theater. The ceremony is also full of fun. There are jokes throughout the ceremony. The traditions include throwing paper planes, and they adapted some famous melodies to an opera of habits like this. What will we do to each one of you? Demands so little of you. Yup, it's that interesting. And the coolest part: the awards are presented by real Nobel laureates in the past years. So if you're interested, go check out the complete video recording of the ceremony. The title is the 29th First Annual Ig Nobel Prize Ceremony, and you can find it on YouTube if you just search "improbable research" for their channel. Now let's take a look at what types of research they honor. There are ten categories of awards. Usually including the categories of the actual Nobel Prize: medicine, chemistry, physics, economics, literature, and peace. The rest of the categories seem to vary from year to year. For the 2019 Nobel Prize, there's no award for literature, but they have awards for medical education, biology, engineering, anatomy, and psychology. Let's look at the medicine prize, which I found very interesting. The medicine prize is awarded to. Silvano Gallas from Italy for collecting evidence that pizza might protect against illness and death if the pizza is made and eaten in Italy. Wow! I mean, my first reaction is, how could it be real? Is this just another Italian being proud of their food? But no, big no. So just look at these publications written by Dr. Gallas and his co-researchers. One, does pizza protect against cancer? Published on the International Journal of Cancer in 2003. Two, pizza and risk of acute myocardial infarction. Published on the European Journal of Clinical Nutrition in 2004. Three, 
pizza consumption and the risk of breast, ovarian, and prostate cancer. Oh wow! This one's published on the European Journal of Cancer Prevention in 2006. And just a friendly reminder that this is a show about libraries. So of course, I searched for all these articles and journals through the University of Alberta libraries, and they are real. The articles have DOI links. The journals are peer-reviewed. The first one I mentioned has already been cited seven times. To be fair, none of these articles stated that eating only Italian pizza in Italy can protect against illness and death. But the authors did look at the diet habits and pizza ingredients in Italy in their research. Still, it's shocking if someone tells you, "Go to Italy and eat your pizza. It's good for preventing cancer, and it's science." Well, I would probably think that they're out of their minds. Now let's look at another example. The economics prize was awarded to scientists from Turkey, the Netherlands, and Germany: Habib Gedet, Timothy Voss, and Andreas Voss. For they tested which country's paper money is best at transmitting dangerous bacteria. So I know what you care about. So I'll say this one first. The Canadian dollars didn't have the best performance, but it was not the worst either. The title of the research paper is "Money and Transmission of Bacteria," published on Antimicrobial Resistance and Infection Control in 2013. In this study, seven different currencies were tested. Other winners are also fun and thought-provoking. For example, the Physics Award is for researchers who studied how and why wombats make cube-shaped poo. Okay, so I'm gonna stop here and encourage y'all to go search the rest of the award winners. We've talked about the unexpected research, we've laughed, and now it's time to think. If you think about it, the research topics for the Nobel Prizes are very close to our daily lives. Many people eat pizza once in a while, and as for money, it's even more unavoidable. So why would some people discover something more out of these daily activities? Well, I guess one important factor is curiosity. If you could just take some time and recall your childhood self, were you more curious than you are now? It's important for every one of us to remain curious. So just imagine the process of having a question and then going for the answer as treasure hunting. And when you are standing at the crossroad, libraries can be your map and guide. We librarians love doing weird research, and we love helping with your research more. And it doesn't have to be a Nobel Prize winner equivalent question. So to everyone who's listening to our show right now, I would say don't be afraid of asking questions, no matter how silly they sound. Go to a library if you are unsure or if you need help, and bring your kids to the library as well if you're a parent. We're always here for you, and we're more than happy to contribute to the next potential big breakthrough. Yay! Yay! So true. What a good show for libraries. Shout out to libraries. Yeah, and librarians do get bored of telling you people where the stapler is. So <laughs> bring them your weird research. Weirder the better, I say. I also just love any research that proves to me what I already know, which is that pizza is very good for me.、Mm-hmm. And before we get into more cool weird research, we should probably mention that. It's, It's fun, fun drive. drive. So give us a call to donate to CJSR at seven eight zero. Four nine two two five seven seven extension zero. Right now, we are at for our show total five hundred and eighty dollars in donations. So please keep them coming. We love CJSR, and I know you do too. So give us a call and give us your money. And if you're just joining us for Fun Drive, 
<laughs> We're exploring weird and unusual research on Shepherd Library. That's right. And speaking of some cool research, have you ever wondered what makes mites tick? Do you mean what makes ticks mites? That too. Well, have we got the segment for you. Here is Shouts Belinda Ongaro interviewing a professor here at U of A about her research into the exciting world of feather mites. Hello, Shout for Libraries listeners. I'm Belinda here with U of A's own Dr. Heather Proctor to chat about some creepy crawlers in the spirit of Halloween. Dr. Proctor's main research areas comprises the ecology, evolution, systematics, and behaviors of mites. She's here today to tell us a little about her research on feather mites and the nature of their relationship with the birds they inhabit. Dr. Proctor is a former Biology 108 professor of mine, so I'm very excited to have the opportunity to learn more about her research. Thank you so much for chatting with us, Dr. Proctor. My pleasure. To start off, can you please provide our listeners with a brief introduction to your vast knowledge on feather mites? Well, I started getting interested in feather mites when I was doing uh, my first professorial job at Queen's University in Ontario. And there were many ornithologists there, people studying birds, and they would bring me bird feathers and they would say, look, the feather mites have eaten holes in the feathers. And I would say, no, you're thinking about feather lice. And I said that a lot of times. I go, oh, feather mites, they aren't really that bad. Feather mites did this. And so finally, I decided I would write a review article that I could just cite and say, you want to know what feather mites do? You can just go and read this annual review of entomology article that discusses the biology of feather mites. And in the process of, of doing that, I just became more and more fascinated with feather mites. And then I moved to Australia. Um, previously, I worked on water mites, but when you go to Australia, there's not a lot of water, but there are a lot of birds. And so I started personally working with uh, feather mites associated with Australian birds, described new species, uh, studied their ecology. And then when I came back to Alberta, I just continued working on the uh, amazing interactions that feather mites have with their hosts. For those of us who aren't quite familiar with what mites are. Can you just give a quick explanation? Yes, we must uh, disambiguate mites and mice. So mice are mammals and mites are little arachnids. And mites are not lice because lice are insects. So feather mites have eight legs like arachnid, other arachnids do. And they've got chelicerae for their mouth parts. Um, and they're related to spiders and scorpions. Wonderful, thanks for the clarification on well, that. They're very, 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 very tiny. <laughs> Now, what kind of resources have you relied upon in your research? Well, of course, as a field ecologist in part, I rely on going outside and collecting things. Um, but one of the most important uh, resources that any researcher can have is access to previous publications, um, both the hot off the press things on science or nature of the day, or really, really old things from the 1800s or, or earlier. And of course, we go to libraries to to find these things. Or now in the modern days, we sit comfortably in our offices and press buttons and the library sends electronic copies of things to us. So I've relied very heavily, um, especially on the University of Alberta's spectacular collection of journals. Um, they subscribe to any journal that you would be interested in, um, much better than other universities I've been in. But they also have a very uh, large repository of actual physical books 
ones that haven't been scanned and turned into electronic resources that can be easily requested, and an army of uh, information scientists of, of the librarian kind who will, if they can't find the book that you're after in the U of A libraries, they will search it out around the world and get it to you. And I understand you've contributed to some publications as well. Are those accessible through the library? Yes, in a variety of formats. Uh, so the most obvious ones would be um, my own research publications published in journals. Uh, if a library subscribes to that journal, then um, you have electronic access to, to those things. And also um, at the University of Alberta, we have something called ERA, which is a repository for different types of research materials, including student theses. So even if your student decides they want to become a rock star instead of a scientist, and they never publish their work, as long as they've written their thesis, then it is electronically available through U of A uh, libraries. Can you tell us a little bit about some of your recent research publications? Well, one of the publications that has got a little bit of press is uh, about the, um, the diets of Feather mites. So feather mites are uh, mites that live on the wing feathers or in the downy feathers of birds, and uh, most of them will live in the little channels between the barbs of the feathers. And uh, um, although ornithologists tend to view these as parasites, as I suggested before, uh, most bird mite people, of which there are at least five in the world, consider them to be more like friendly, non-threatening co-travelers. And so what uh, I and my colleagues, in mostly in Spain, did was um, we both looked at the gut contents of feather mites that I had collected over the years from around the world and put on slides. And my student, Arnica, was the most important person to do this. And we just cataloged what we saw in the guts of feather mites. If they were parasites, then they should have little bits of feathers or bird blood in them. But if they were harmless commensals, which means just living on something and not doing it harm nor benefiting it, then they should have uh, none of those materials. What we found was that uh, much of the feather mite gut contents consisted of, uh, of fungi, uh, hyphae and spores of fungi. My colleagues in Spain were at the same time working on live birds and, and feather mites that they collected right off the, the host bird. And they were using what's called a metabarcoding approach to try and uh, molecularly determine the gut contents. They can only do this with a fairly small number of birds and mite species because it's pretty expensive and complicated. But what they found through their molecular approach was that, yes, indeed, the gut contents were primarily um, uh, fungi, together with bacteria and a little bit of uh, plant matter, probably pollen. No bird blood, no bird DNA in the gut contents of the mites at all. So that sort of uh, nailed it. These mites are not parasites. They're probably just, um, in the words of Monty Python, licking road clean, for those of you who remember the uh, that particular skit. So they feed on stuff that gets stuck on the feathers, but in the process, they're probably also cleaning the feathers because some of the um, fungi and bacteria that were found in the guts of the feather mites were actually ones that can degrade feathers and be harmful to the bird. That's really great that you were able to clarify that relationship. I'm wondering if you could kind of give us a little bit more of a perspective on who might be interested in this knowledge and why we should care about it. Well. First and, and foremost, ornithologists should care about this uh, because much ornithological research is trying to assess the health 
of birds. And if one inappropriately classifies a bird with a lot of feather mites as being in bad condition, um, then you will probably misinterpret the, uh, the general health of that bird. Uh, because correlative studies of uh, the sort of plumpness and healthiness of wild bird hosts and the mite, feather mite loads actually strongly indicate that healthy birds have more mites, not fewer mites. So that's one thing. Another thing is that um, the feather mites, if they are doing the bird a service, then perhaps it would be ill-advised for conservation researchers or, or people doing rehabilitation or having birds in zoos to try and remove the mites. So perhaps you may wish to leave the mite load intact um, as long as the bird appears healthy. Good to know. Um, if science students are interested in this topic, how could they learn more or get involved? Well, the first thing to do is to Google feather mites, um, University of Alberta, and you will find me, and you will probably also find uh, publications uh, that I and my students have, have done. Uh, another good resource is the library's moderately large collection on mites, which they have uh, both in hard copy and electronic form, um, including the book that Dave Walter and I wrote uh, about mite ecology and evolution and behavior, which, thanks to the library, is completely free. Excellent. And are any of the courses that you're teaching currently focusing on this at all? Uh, if you're very interested in the more um, medical and veterinary applied aspects of mites, because not all mites are nice individuals, ticks are a type of mite, for example, um, then Felix Sperling and I are teaching um, Entomology uh, 392, which is medical veterinary entomology this winter. And you can learn all about things that bite you. Excellent. So be sure to sign up for that course. It seems that you like libraries a lot. What's the most fascinating thing that you've discovered in your literature-based research? Well, one of the earliest things that I did um, actually as a master's student uh, was to sum up all the published information that there was on what it was that water mites feed on. This was really fascinating for me because um, by chance I happened to take German in high school. And what I found was that when I got into the literature that was written in German, uh, there was so much more known about water mites than you would ever discover if you only looked at the, the publications that were English. So in the literature review that I did for my, in part of my master's degree, I actually managed to integrate uh, the basically unknown to the English-speaking world knowledge from the uh, very excellent German water mite researchers. Um, and I also discovered that uh, one of the main ideas about certain types of water mites that were, was in the English literature was completely wrong because the Germans had already shown that it was wrong. And for 20 years or so, other the English-speaking people were continuing down the wrong path. So learn another language or Google Translate. Awesome. Well, definitely a huge takeaway of today is learn German. <laughs> <laughs> and appreciate mites. And appreciate mites. So thank you so much, Dr. Proctor, for sharing your fascinating research with us today, adding the relevance of libraries to diverse areas of research such as yours. Thank you very much for the invitation. 
And thanks so much for Belinda Angaro for bringing us that small but mighty interview <laughs> with Dr. Heather Proctor from the Department of Biological Sciences here at U of A. And if you are feeling mighty generous, we have great news for you because it's Fun Drive. Yes, we're raising money to keep CJSR ticking. So give us a call at 780-492-2577, extension zero. Volunteers are standing by to soothe your itch to give. And you have a couple of minutes left to be entered in our draw to for a $50 gift card to Variant Editions Comics and a mystery box of hockey cards. Next, we have our own Dan Hackborn, who ventured earlier this week into the eerie stillness that abides in the darkest depths of the library's collection. Dan emerged alive, but forever changed. Mm -hmm. Here he is with his account of what came from the stacks. Hi, thanks for joining me on my search for the cool, the unique, and the unusual items present within library collections. When it comes to libraries, a question that comes up a lot might be, What's he building in there? Or rather, what is going on in there? Both within a librarianship program and within society at large, it's common to hear the idea that libraries are changing or are situated within a changing culture. Speaking in the language of clickbait, do people even read books anymore? Our libraries, insofar as they are often perceived to be book warehouses, obsolete? Given all of that, the original Rutherford building appears to be a fossil, preserved in the amber of the more recent additions. Standing in the atrium, the flow of people clearly moves directly through the building and into the newer half. But if you head south, past the old stone facade and into a space filled with empty glass display cases, that's where you'll find the Bruce Peel Special Collections. Downwards, past flights of stone stairs that have literally been worn down by generations of feet, there lies an unassuming door in the basement. Deadlines and work being what it is, I finally tracked down what I was looking for fairly last minute, this morning in fact. But here I am, a few hours later, given access to the original human documents. And when I say that, I do mean the originals. Here in the special collection, I've put on hold four tablets, written in Sumeria roughly 2,900 to 2,031 years before the Common Era. The first thing that strikes you is how tiny the tablets are. When we hear tablet, we might think of something like Charlton Heston's Ten Commandments, but these tablets, while housed in something the size of a thick CD jewel case, are themselves the size of a flash drive. They are dull brown in color, with small triangular etchings in them, densely written and crowding the surface of the tablet. What does poor penmanship and cuneiform look like is a question that immediately jumps to mind. While there are several sites proposed as independent inventions of writing, the most commonly agreed upon and earliest discovered instance is the Sumerian culture, located in what is now known as Iraq, developing somewhere between 3400 and 3300 BCE. As the Sumerians put it in their blockbuster hit in Merkar and the Lord of Arada from 1800 BCE, because the messenger's mouth was heavy and he couldn't repeat the message, the Lord of Kulaba pat some clay and put words on it, like a tablet. Until then, there had been no putting words on clay. It's important to realize that this monumental invention, writing, was actually part of a greater continuum of innovation. Sumerian cuneiform seems to have itself developed from earlier clay tokens and markings that tabulated commodities. 
As if to make this point, these tablets don't convey epic poetry or the actions of royalty. Rather, they are records of day-to-day -day transactions, a temple's receipt for a sacrificial lamb, a laborer's wages for agricultural work, etc. Later innovations in written language include explicit symbols for vowel sounds so that writing could more easily be reconstructed into spoken language, and the sort of retrovation that emojis represent in a return to pictograms, an earlier form of proto-writing like numerals. Since these initial words were written, the media and languages have transformed countless times. We've had papyrus scrolls in Egypt, found books made from bamboo and paper in China, indigenous codices in Mesoamerica, parchments made from animal skins, wax tablets, manuscripts copied by hand, the revolution that accompanied the widespread adoption of the printing press, the evolution of media beyond text in the 19th century, including braille, sound recording, and both static and moving film, and leading to our present digital moment, where we find ourselves surrounded not only by digitized information, but in specific and varied forms, like Web 2.0 or e-readers. And throughout it all, we have meta-commentary, texts written about the texts themselves. Accompanying these tablets are papers marked up with translator's notes, recreating the tablet's meaning for us here in the present day. That's because libraries are not only for storing information, but also for making it accessible to a community. Information may change containers, and as the digital revolution continues, libraries will change, sure, incorporating that digital information into their infrastructure. The purpose, however, remains the same, and in fact, keeping the technological continuum accessible is also important. A library is a place where, as much as practically possible, able to read a peer-reviewed academic paper published today, or a receipt created 5,000 years ago. Wow, so cool! It's amazing that you can find the library's fat, fat stuff. Imagine how much fatter they'd be if everything was still on clay tablets, the am fattest. I right? Yeah. The fattest. <laughs> You're listening to Shout for Libraries Fun Drive episode. And speaking of you, let's see if you want our draw. That's right. I am drawing a name here for the winner of the $50 Variant Editions comic gift card and a random box of potentially priceless hockey cards. The winner is... Will Gluck. Thank you so much, Will Gluck. Yay! Uh, that's so great. Thanks so much for donating. We will be in touch right after the show to tell you how you get your prize. Uh, thanks so much to Brandon and Danica from Variant Editions for donating that sick prize to us. This has been Shout for Libraries special on Weird Research. And a special thanks to all of our guests this week, including Robin Stobbs and Dr. Heather Proctor, and for all our team members' contributions, including the amazing Emily Villanueva, who is working hard behind the scenes at Shouts all the time. Yeah, and playing us out here uh, is one more song about research. So this is Husker Du with the song Books About UFOs. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to check, check it out. It out.